Welcome to Work Life Confidential with your host, Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Work Life Confidential gets to the heart of uncomfortable, sometimes taboo topics. Bosses and coworkers behaving badly, other workplace stresses, gender, race, money, and their effect on everything that happens at work and in your life outside of work. Together, we'll find the answers you've been looking for. Now, here is Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Welcome to Work Life Confidential. I'm Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Thanks so much for joining us. Have you ever worked with somebody who was so unpredictable that you and everybody else who worked near them or had to deal with them would would approach them in a way that maybe you try to get a glimpse from a distance just to see if they've got that look in their eye today before you approach them? Because you can't be sure. Are they going to be friendly? Are they going to be hostile? Are they going to be in hyperdrive? And maybe you've seen them do some pretty outrageous things. Maybe you've seen them yell and curse. And, and maybe they've done those things quite a bit. And nobody stops them. They just, they just keep doing it. Well, today we're going to talk about such bad workplace behavior in all, a whole bunch of different varieties, a whole bunch of different forms. And we have the best guy on the planet with us <laughs> to help with this. I'm so thrilled that we have Dr. Park Dietz with us. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Dietz holds, in addition to an MD, an MPH, and a PhD. In 1987, he founded the Threat Assessment Group, TAG, like the game for short, TAG. And this is the first company in the world devoted to workplace violence prevention. TAG has provided services to many of the Fortune 500 companies, as well as hundreds of other organizations of all sizes. In his role as expert witness, and we are very happy to have Park here because he is frequently called away for expert witness work, he has evaluated some of the most dangerous minds of our time. Almost any of the sensationalized crimes that you hear about, he has probably played a role in evaluating the perpetrators. And they include, to name a few, John Hinckley, Jeffrey Dahmer, Dylan Roof, and lots of others. Dr. Dietz was educated at Cornell University, at Johns Hopkins, at the University of Pennsylvania. He has taught at Harvard Medical School, the University of Virginia School of Law, and he is the clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. You can learn more about Dr. Dietz and the Threat Assessment Group at his website, which is www.tag, T-A-G, Incorporated, or I-N-C, tag, I-N-C, dot com. You can also call their office at 949-723-2220. Dr. Dietz, it is a great pleasure to have you with us. Delighted to be with you. And I would like you to start by just talking with us some about the kind of situation I described. How common are they? Why do they go on and on and on without anybody fixing them? Ken, nobody actually knows how common 
these ordinary everyday events are because nobody's ever measured it. What, what has been measured is what happens when they get worse. Okay. And the general tendency, and everyone's expectation should be, if you ignore this problem long enough, or if you act provocatively in the face of such a person, it's going to get worse. And the universal tendency is to ignore it. I'll give you an example. Uh, very early in the days of TAG, I was out doing training for 3,000 supervisors in a civic center auditorium, and I talked to them about a host of early warning signs that we would want to see reported to human resources or reported to security. And literally every supervisor there had seen people behave in some of these many ways. I asked them, did you report it? Nope. Nobody had reported any of it. So I asked the audience, why didn't you report these things? And they shouted out their answers from, from the floor. And they included things like, I didn't want to cause trouble. I thought someone else might handle it. HR is always too slow. I didn't want to be wrong. That's just the way he is. And a long list of these excuses. Well, the truth of the matter is, when somebody says that's just the way he is, what they're really saying is, I've overlooked this for so long that it doesn't even bother me anymore. When they say well, I, I don't want to be wrong, they're not recognizing there are two ways to be wrong. You can report someone and waste half an hour of HR's time for nothing, which is fine. Or you can fail to report, and it can escalate into something terrible. Can well, let me which way you'd rather be wrong. What what role do you think fear is playing in this? What in what ways do you think that people just being uneasy and frightened makes them back away, even if they've got a supervisory role? Well, for the coworker, it's certainly understandable that they back away. For the supervisor, I, I'm confident fear plays a part, but it wouldn't if anyone had properly trained the supervisor. What we urge employers to train the supervisors is that you don't need to handle this. Mm -hmm. This is not your job. Your job is to contact HR or security and let them handle it. That message is very well received. Supervisors don't have the skill to handle all the strange behaviors that can arise in a workplace, and it shouldn't be their focus. Specialists should handle those problems. And do you think that in most companies, those specialists, the human resources, consultants, the global security or the security reps, are they equipped to, well, to respond in a way that's going to be constructive? It depends primarily on the size of the company. And the reason I say that is um, we know with certainty that 30 years ago, not a single company in the world was prepared to deal with it. But since then, uh, the largest companies have either been trained by us or by somebody imitating us. And today, the vast majority of, uh, say, Fortune 1000 companies do have something in place 
that isn't completely naive or incorrect. Still, we're surprised um, a few times a month with a sizable client who says we'd like to start a process. Well, they're 25 years behind the curve, but at least they're starting now. For smaller employers, the likelihood that they've got good resources in place is pretty low. The smaller the company, the less likely they have resources internally. Have you seen have and perhaps worked with small companies where they're able to assemble the the kind of comprehensive response that I know you work with organizations to put in place, perhaps using some external supports and some internal expertise as well? Sure. I'll, I'll give you an example of it. Um, a small company we'd never dealt with before uh, called out of the blue on a referral from their lawyer or someone else saying that they were kind of worried because that morning someone had posted on a bulletin board a news article about a mass murder at a similar company down the road. And they'd crossed out the names of the company where it happened, put in the name of this company, misspelled, and crossed out the name of a crying widow under a photograph, put in the name of the wife of one of the supervisors. And I said, well, what did you do when you found that? And they said, well, we took it down. I said, good move. What would you do next? They said, we brought the top people together and we had a huddle. Well, that was smart of them. I told them so. Then what? Well, then we compared the handwriting on that article with the five or six people we thought might have done such a thing, and we found somebody that matched. Not only that, he misspelled the name of the company the same way when he applied to work here. Okay, so now you know who it is. What would you do next? They said, well, we called in the supervisor and showed it to him. I said, uh-oh. So this is the stage at which they had done the right thing so far, and then they made a mistake. But thankfully, they called. And the mistake they made was that that's going to provoke an encounter immediately because the supervisor ran out, confronted the employee. They got in a shouting match, and both of them were sent home. <coughs> Well, I explored further. Um, when you sent him home, tell me about his home. Well, he and his wife aren't getting along. His wife left him. She's got the home. She's got the kids. Well, where's he living? He's living in his truck, and the truck ain't working too well. Well, where's he parking at night in our parking lot? What's he got left to his name? Just his gun collection. So when you send him home, you send him out to your parking lot with his gun collection. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Mm. Wow. Tremendously ominous, it sounds like. Where did it go from there? Well, we found a solution. And the solution came, as it surprisingly often does, from asking, do you know this man's hopes and dreams? Mm. And they did. Um, his dream was to save enough money to move a different county because he heard in the next county over the jobs don't suck and the women don't leave you. So I said, <laughs> we can help with that. We can find a way to do it. And promptly we did. So as I've heard you say a number of times, it's, it's, about, it's about creating safety. It's not about being right or getting justice even necessarily. 
from the company's perspective. It's about doing something that de-escalates the situation and gains safety, correct? Exactly. That's precisely it. Okay. So I wonder, you had mentioned just a couple minutes ago that these situations, when left alone, tend to escalate. And that's something my, my team worked with you for almost 20 years. And so we, we borrowed your, your team's guidance. We borrowed your training. We did everything we could to follow your model. And one of the ideas that we put forward was that not only do employees have their technical performance expectations, but every single one of them also has a fundamental performance expectation. And that is that when any of us comes to work, we're gonna behave in a way that's safe, that's civil, that's respectful, that's collaborative, that's approachable, all of those good things. And if we're not, then we have a performance difficulty we need, that we need to be challenged on and, get, and provided guidance on. How do, how, do we help, how do we help supervisors get there to that kind of understanding? Well, it's a wonderful approach. And having that be part of the standard performance evaluation that uh, gives the supervisor an opportunity to run through something of a checklist with the employee and to address those issues head on and talk to them about where they need improvement, offer them resources to be able to seek improvement so they can perform better and keep their jobs that's critical. But yep. once the behavior passes a certain line, I think it's time to involve HR or other specialists. What is that line? What does it look like? Well, different companies are going to do this differently. Uh, and in fact, they do. Um, from my standpoint, our general recommendation is to look for a host of behaviors that we know are associated with problems in living, including mental health problems and medical problems, that give us an opportunity to bring that employee in the right way to employee assistance resources so that they can get the help they need. And then separately from that, there's a list of indicators of what we call troubling situations in which what we want the supervisor to do is contact security or HR immediately for guidance on what to do. That is, we want to take it out of the hand of the supervisor, put it in the hands of people who've been trained how to deal with it. And that latter group of troubling situation indicators includes all the things known to be associated with violence risk but also things associated with other bad risks of sabotage, stealing proprietary information, suicide, uh, racist behavior, misogynistic behavior, and the other things that will cause great trouble for coworkers and the employer. Let me ask you, isn't it the case that sometimes the supervisor is in fact the problem maybe is modeling some behaviors and no doubt. I've, I, I sometimes feel like these situations are 
are so systemically determined that it, it's almost like you have to look at the whole chain of command. I don't know how often that's the case, but I know with certainty that sometimes the problem is a bullying manager. Mm-hmm. And one of the frustrations for me consulting to employers on this has been that when we see that the problem arose because of the supervisor or manager's misbehavior, we don't have a very good success rate at ensuring that that bully gets disciplined. Why are why is that? What are some of the what are some of the barriers that you found? I, well, I can it, I can mention some myself, but I'm wondering what you yeah. come across. Well, having been on the inside, you probably know better than I, but what it looks like to me as an outsider is that management is closing ranks and protecting mm-hmm. one of their own, and they're unwilling to discipline the bad-acting manager. They think that counseling or guidance will be enough, and it isn't. Yeah, and I, I agree. And and what I've seen is the the notion that well, this person get thing, gets a lot done. Maybe they leave some, they leave quite a bit of human wreckage behind, but they get a lot of work done. And also, the the bully never bullies upward or sideways. <laughs> They're exquisitely sensitive to the dynamics of power, and they only act out when they're with people who they either have power over or they have a collusive connection to. They know that person isn't going to, isn't going to try to stop them. That's, that's the way it seems to me a lot. I think you nailed it. <laughs> so we're going to continue our conversation in a little bit. We're also going to be joined by listeners, hoping we'll have some people call in with their stories and their questions. I have to say, when I was talking about this topic with a colleague, they were saying to me, wow, does this stuff really happen? And all I could think was, I know, all I could think was, boy, have you been blessed. (laughs) Have you been blessed (laughs) to be in work situations where this stuff doesn't happen? Because it's so prevalent. It's so very prevalent. So we're going to take a brief pause, and we'll be back with Dr. Park Dietz of the Threat Assessment Group for more conversation on disturbing workplace behavior and what everybody can do to be part of the solution. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects, mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. 
That's GreenGateLeadership.com. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI, the workforce resilience expert, is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at 1-800-987-1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI, the workforce resilience experts. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work-Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. Welcome back to Work-Life Confidential. I'm speaking with Dr. Park Dietz, who is the founder of the Threat Assessment Group, which is the -the state-of-the-art organization to help employers to understand and respond to workplace misconduct and misconduct that rises perhaps across the continuum to the point of showing warning signs for workplace violence. You can learn more about Dr. Dietz and his organization at www.tagincorporated.com or you can give a phone call to 949-723- Two 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 zero. Dr. Dietz is very interested in hearing your comments and questions, and you can reach us either through for, through phoning the contact number here, which is eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero, or give me an email. Send me an email at ken at greengateleadership.com. GreenGateLeadership.com. Dr. Dietz, I wonder if you could talk some more about warning signs and the and the studies that you have done, your team has done on this matter. Sure. Well, the first set of studies I did concerned threatening communications. And this I did on my own when I was quite young and then received a grant from the National Institute of Justice to study threats and other inappropriate communications sent to members of the U.S. Congress and to Hollywood celebrities. And we did a number of side studies in other contexts as well, like threats by students to people on a campus and threats within the workplace. And we found some big surprises there. The biggest surprise is that threats are not what we think, that 
while we do need to take threats seriously, only about half of the people who go, go on to do very bad things have made in advance what could be called a threat. But the rest have all done other things that weren't exactly threats. Mm. Secondly, well, the surprise... What sorts of things, that, if I may jump in, what sorts of things are you talking about? Yeah, well, I'll get to them. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> but the other big thing about threats in particular is that in some contexts, people who made threats in their inappropriate communications were less dangerous than people who sent inappropriate communications but didn't threaten. In other words, threats weren't as clear an indication of hostile intent as you might think. And we eventually learned why that is, that many people who are powerless, upset, and frustrated use threatening language to try to puff themselves up, to try to express emotions, and for other reasons. So threats remain important, but if one only learns about threats, that's not enough. The other kinds of things that are awfully important to learn about are behaviors that frighten, intimidate, or concern other people. And there's a wide variety of these, but they include people who hint at violence against other people or use innuendo or talk about their weapons in a way that scares other people or keep talking about mass murder or active shooters or shooting sprees or violent attacks, even if it's fiction they're talking about. So... That gives other people the creeps without being exactly a threat. Another category that we want to hear about is if somebody is spending time learning about someone else that they have no reason to spend their time learning about. And that can include conducting surveillance, researching them, going through their possessions, writing notes about them, documenting them. All of these are behaviors that are part of what will ultimately become stalking if it goes on long enough. Yet another category are indications of anger, and that takes different form. Uh, temper tantrums, hostility, shouting, throwing things, slamming things, all of these evidence anger. Still another category are talking of suicide, depressive thoughts, becoming obsessed with death. And a final category are things that a clinician would refer to as kinds of paranoid behavior, having a chip on your shoulder, thinking other people are out to get you, feeling persecuted, thinking there's a conspiracy against you, filing unreasonable grievances all the time, filing lawsuits constantly accusing other people of causing one's problems. All of those categories are the universal warnings of very serious violence. But so many people throw off those behaviors and only a tiny fraction of them 
commit serious acts of violence, that we have to be very careful what we do when we learn of these behaviors. Any of them is enough to have an organization investigate the facts and come up with a management plan. Very few of them are enough to say this person is dangerous and we have to remove them from the setting. So let me let me jump in and, and ask you, I've, I've cataloged some of what you've said and I've got down threats, preoccupation with violent stories, trying to intrusively learn about another person, anger, temper tra- tantrums, suicidal or depressive thoughts, and then, and then behaviors that show paranoia or suspiciousness, grudging, grudge, holding grudges, filing complaints, talking about lawsuits, maybe filing lawsuits. If we see that, are there then, are there then particular added warning signs that say, okay, now we're tripping into something that's very serious? Well, um, that list of things was what we discovered were the signs that mass murderers in the United States from the year 1900 until the year 1992 had in common more often than the rest of mankind had in common. Mm. That's how we arrived at that list, by a study of mass murder. And uh, just this month, the FBI got around to studying something similar. They looked at what they called pre-attack behaviors of active shooters. That's not the same as mass murder, but they're overlapping groups. And they came up with some of what we discovered, replicated the same findings. They used somewhat different language about it and have... um, a few innovative observations. But I want to be real clear. We're talking about the most serious kinds of violence here. Right, right. If you wanted to talk about violence in general throughout society, the two most important things to know about a human are, does this person abuse any substance, including alcohol, including pot? And second, has this person ever been violent before? Every study that's ever been done with adequate data finds that these are the two most important predictors of future violence. It turns out they're not so important with respect to mass murderers or active shooters. But they are important for predicting who's going to beat you up, who's going to have a potential of stabbing or shooting someone who's going to engage in any kind of violent act. So so what I'm taking away is that the most important predictors are a history of violence and then one abusing one substance or another and I and I guess I'm thinking that if you have a history of violence and and you are using substances, perhaps the substances are going to disinhibit you, and, and that perhaps adds to the, the potential for violence? That's the likely explanation. But the, um, but the data are very consistent in all sorts of settings that the 
heavy use of any substance is associated with violence. I want to ask you a question that arises from much of the much of the reporting and the and the analysis that goes on with these very sensationalized mass murders that seem to be happening with increasing frequency and and there's always this this pulling together of of mass murder and mental health conditions and as you know, about about one in five people live with one mental health condition or another. And my understanding is that ha- the mere fact of having a mental health condition in no way suggests that you are more likely to be violent than anybody else unless it perhaps falls into that narrow band of mental health conditions that you were talking about that leads a person to have grudges, to be suspicious, to to be paranoid. Can you comment on that? You bet. Um, First, you're exactly right. Um, And to uh, underscore the point, while one in five Americans suffers from a mental disorder, fewer than one in five active shooters does. If anything, they have less mental illness than the general population. That's, That's so important to hear. Yeah, it's really been a very misleading idea that's quite widespread. Now, that doesn't mean that mental illness plays no part, because as everyone knows, there have been some active shooters and mass murderers and uh, even a couple serial killers who've had severe mental illness. But it's the exception rather than the rule. So I wonder if you could talk about what are some of the key behaviors that workplace supervisors, coworkers should be looking for. And you've outlined a couple of them and that the history of violence. So I'm imagining that means if a person talks about being involved with violence in the past and, and also if you know that they're abusing substances, what are some of the other warning signs? Well, really, I think the right way to look at this is not to wait for late-stage warning signs that are associated with very serious violence. That would be very foolish to wait for those. Instead, get HR or security, or if you don't have those, your manager involved. At an early stage, when someone's behavior is violating the rules or breaking the law, or giving you the creeps, or making you uncomfortable. Make it their job to gather the facts and figure out if this is dangerous or what needs to be done. The way that... I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah, because the employee shouldn't have that job, and neither should the supervisor, or in most cases, the manager. Well, I love the phrase gives you the creeps because if we all know when we're feeling uncomfortable, we all, we all know when we are unsettled by the way somebody's behavior, behaving and if we can if we can pay attention to that and and value it and not just feel like okay, that's just Joe or that's just Sue, then 
then we can raise it, correct? I mean, then we can say, okay, this isn't this isn't for me to fix, but I need to raise it to the right people. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. Now, this is in the workplace where you have someone to raise it to. Right. But Hopefully. frankly, the same the same issues are true at home and in your neighborhood. That and the way I think about this in one's personal life is if you see these kinds of behaviors in someone you love, take them for help. If you see these behaviors in someone you don't love and don't have to be with, get away from them. Escape the situation. And if you see these behaviors in someone you already suspect has broken a serious law or is about to, call the police. And in each one of those, what I'm, what I'm getting from you is you got to do something. You, you don't just you don't just let it go on and on and on. And I fear that that's what most people do most of the time. They're for whatever reason, perhaps they don't know what to do or they're afraid to take action. They don't they don't do anything. Well, and the most common example of that, perhaps something we should talk about in a later show, is in the domestic violence context. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about how important that that whole pandemic really. I mean, it's a it's a it's a public health emergency, the frequency of domestic violence. Yes, it is. And and how it how it is so frequently part of the picture, both in these extraordinary acts of public violence and in workplace violence. You bet it's about a third of the workplace violence related matters we deal with right right i've heard you i've heard you say that and and it shows you how important it is to for workplace actors to take it seriously and and there's often indications there's often indications that it's happening i i wonder if you could just give us a really quick preview of the what workplaces should have in place what workplaces should have in place to do the best they can to generate a safe and respectful environment well the first set of steps is to make sure that there is a group of people from different disciplines if the company has hr security legal if they have an employee assistance program internally, these are among the dozen disciplines that ought to be involved in training together so that they know how to function as a team and manage nearly everything that comes their way. To do that, they also have to have policies in place that hold people accountable for their behaviors in the workplace and their behaviors toward their coworkers, even outside the workplace. So often we begin with team training and composition and making sure the policies are what they need to be. But that's not enough. The next step is to roll out training to every manager in the company and every supervisor in the company so they know what they should notice and report and the stage after that is training for every employee in the company so they know 
what to notice and report and why they should do so. When that's done, reporting skyrockets immediately and it stays elevated for up to a year and then returns back to where it started. So this has to be done every year or people revert to form. And it's human nature to ignore problems and hope they'll go away. That's what people do when they aren't reminded that it's their responsibility to observe and report. Well, great. We're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and talk a bit more, perhaps in depth, about what workplaces can and should do, all workplaces, to make sure they have the safest possible environment. We'll be right back. the boardroom to you voice america business network as a business professional you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused engaged and productive we all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource attention the key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience we can't always avoid challenging situations but we can make sure we bounce back fei the Workforce Resilience Expert is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at one 800 987 1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI, the workforce resilience experts. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Dietz who is the founder and director of the Threat Assessment Group. We are just scratching the surface of this very, very important topic. So please follow up with him. Afterwards, you can connect with TAG at www.taginc.com. 
And you can also call TAG at 949-723-2220. I believe that every business leader should be familiar with this organization, state-of-the-art organization, and it is the place to get the the best consultation and the best help in structuring your response to this very important social issue. So, Dr. Dietz, I wonder if you could talk about some of the ways that companies sort of address this but don't really address it. They, they kind of give huh. lip service to what really needs to be a comprehensive approach instead. Well, we see today two things that are done when companies don't get it. The first is to have what we call check-the-box training. They buy some product off the Internet made by somebody with no expertise at all who went to some websites and grabbed some information, threw together a pretty packaged training program, and they have their employees take 10-minute to 60-minute lessons that aren't correct and don't give people the information they need and don't tell them the right things to do. So that's very common and um, is worse than nothing. I was just going to say, it sounds like it would, it would make things worse than absolutely no training at all. Some of them do. Some of them are so devoid of content that it doesn't do much harm, but it, it wouldn't take any longer to train them properly. The, the second thing that has become a fad, and this is a much more recent trend, is to demand, as some executives do and as some employees do, to demand active shooter training without having done anything to prevent an armed attack in the workplace. And that would be the wrong sequence. One should first take steps to prevent it, and then, if you're still interested, go ahead and take steps to prepare for an armed attack and to train people how to respond if it happens. This is what schools are doing. Many schools are quite well along the path of preparing in case it happens, but they're not doing the things they should to prevent it from happening. They've got it all wrong. And some workplaces are getting it all wrong, too, and starting with what to do if there is an armed attack. The reason that's not where to start is partly that it's such a rare event um, that it's kind of silly to train everyone about that when, in the same time, you could train them how to prevent dozens of different problems, including armed attacks, so that you don't have one. Another reason it's a bad idea to start there is that done the wrong way, it can scare people. It can do more harm than good if it is done in a way that's frightening. But there are ways to do it that are not frightening, that are reassuring and calming and give people actual skills. I just don't think it's the highest priority training. Yeah, I can tell you, we did active shooter training at Prudential, and we had, as you know, a, a very well-developed response to 
difficult behaviors in the workplace. We had a, a good response for any any behavior that fell on the continuum of escalation for workplace violence. And I have to tell you that training, even for me and my colleagues on the response team, was pretty unsettling. Pretty unsettling because you you can get a sense of the just the the horror of that experience. Just terrifying. I worry about people developing anxiety disorders from graphically done training. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see how that would that would be the case. So maybe you can talk more just a little bit about some of the other elements of a workplace workplace response. And so I'm thinking about things like employment screening and protecting the boundaries of the organization. Because mm-hmm. all, all of these things come into play, right? Absolutely. Part of a whole workplace violence prevention program would include the pre-employment screening, mm-hmm. the access controls and other parts of the security plan, having a drug-free workplace program, having an employee assistance program. Um, There are many components. The part we deal primarily with is putting in place a system for observing and reporting, investigating, analyzing, and managing misconduct. And that's where all this training comes in. But I think companies could do much better than they currently do at pre-employment screening. One of the big missing elements there is sophisticated interviewing. Yeah, I I can tell you that in the consulting and coaching I've done, just asking that the interviewers ask questions like, tell me about a time when you had a very strong disagreement with a supervisor or a coworker. Tell me about a time when you got very angry at work. Those kinds of questions, it seems, are, are hard for many interviewers to ask, and, and yet, just to get a sense of the person's frustration tolerance, and maybe what did, what's, what's one of the most outrageous things that you ever did when you were angry at another person, those kinds of questions sometimes will get really helpful responses, but they, they're hard for people to ask, it seems. Yes, they are. One of my favorites is to ask the applicant to tell me about the best boss you ever had and tell me about the worst boss you ever had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we're looking for is where they get worked up the most and who they say the most about. Right. Right. And, and one of the things that I've heard people say is, look, people aren't going to tell you if they got upset, they're not going to tell you their stories that maybe will reflect poorly upon them. And in my experience, they'll tell, they'll give you data that may in fact be more than you would have expected. And that that can be extremely, extremely helpful. I, I once was interviewing a man for a job in a clinical nursing role. And I just I just asked him, I said, you know, it's a role that is is often and traditionally has been held by women. What has it been like to be in that kind of a profession for you? 
and he he went off he went off and just started talking about how angry he gets and how difficult it is for him to have female supervisors and i mean just it, it's surprising to me and that's just one example of the things people will tell us when we ask them questions and and how important it is to be a little bit just a little bit in a sincere way nosy when you do an interview for for an employment position well, I'm smiling as you tell that example, Ken, because um, I've spent a lifetime interviewing people who've already done terrible things who mm-hmm. are not going to make things better for themselves by confessing anything worse or more, and yet who will reveal all sorts of damaging bad things about themselves on one condition which is that after you ask the question, you sit back and shut up. Mm-hmm. You give them a chance to express themselves. And mm-hmm. this is something many interviewers never learned, that as soon as a moment of silence passes, they move on to the next question, whereas allowing silence to linger will motivate the person to speak, and you'll learn much more. Absolutely. I, I'm afraid to say that we've got one minute, so we need to wrap up. What, what's one thought that you'd like to leave the people who are listening today? It's that if you observe something you know to be wrong, inappropriate, or it's causing you concern, it's not your job to fix it in the workplace. It's your job to let human resources or security or your manager know about it. Great. So don't don't try to fix it, but definitely escalate it. And I'm going to use your words before. You should do something. If you love them, get help. If you can, get away. And if if you need to, you will call the police. We've been speaking with Dr. Park Dietz of the Threat Assessment Group. Learn more about him at www.taginc.com. I'm Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. You've been listening to Work Life Confidential. I'd like to thank Randall Libero, our executive producer, producer, and Josh, our engineer. And thank you so much. We'll look forward to talking with you again next week. Thank you for listening to Work Life Confidential with Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. We hope you've taken a bit of wisdom from today's program that will help you at work and home. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have an outstanding week.